and imprisonments and tumults and labors and watchings and fastings by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, uh, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, uh, by the power of God, uh, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand uh, and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report as deceivers and yet true. Uh, and so you see all of these situations that the apostles found themselves in, difficult circumstances, and how were they able to make it through these? Was it by their own power or strength or ability? Uh, I like to think and have said many times before that there was not anything special about Paul in and of himself. He was able to do great things and endure great things that we look at and say, man, I don't know. <laughs> if I were in those situations, might I have cowered out or how would I have acted? And a lot of times people look to situations now and say, well, what if we were being tortured or persecuted? Would we be willing to give up who we are in Christ just to get along? Well, I'd, I'd like to think in this context bears the truth that it's not the power of the individual that's at work. It's the power of God. And here you see the power of God was working and energizing through Paul. And you see it's uh, also by the word of truth. Uh, now, of course, we see uh, a lot of lies being told on Paul. We won't go really deep into this, but as you go back into the book of Acts and the things that happened to Paul there, a lot of the persecution happened to him as a result of what? Lies. <laughs> they said that he was teaching things that he actually wasn't teaching. But the thing that is constant that remained with Paul was that he was speaking the word of God and the word of God is true. And we see that uh, in this context here. Also, uh, over with a little bit of support to this, we see the gospel for salvation is characterized as the true word. Go with me over to Ephesians chapter one and verse 13. Ephesians chapter one and verse 13. And let's pick it up at verse 7. Of course, in this context, we see a lot of uh, in Christ truth uh, stated all throughout this first chapter. Uh, again, because it's basically one long run on sentence. But in verse 7, you see it says, In whom uh, we have redemption through his blood, speaking of Christ, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one thing all things in Christ, both uh, which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him, who worked all things after the uh, counsel of his will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted after you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, uh, in whom also after you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 
And so you see the gospel for our salvation, those facts of the gospel. Uh, and it's interesting, uh, the pastor is doing that study through 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. And what's the big issue facing those Corinthian saints there? They had stopped believing in the resurrection that is a key element of the gospel that Paul has to come back and reiterate to them that this is a fact and an important fact to the faith that you're placing uh, uh, for your salvation. Uh, And so you see here, uh, the word concerning the salvation is truth. There's truth that uh, uh, comes as a result of that, and there's a verification of that truth that people could attest to uh, as you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as well. Uh, But you see that truth uh, concerning the word of the gospel uh, or, or salvation as well. Then over in uh, Colossians chapter one and verse five, we see the hope of the believer is in the word of truth. Colossians chapter one and verse five. Now, there's a lot of different discussion on uh, what hope is and biblical hope has to do with, uh, we certainly would believe here that this hope is on the basis of the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And because God is true, uh, we can say that this word or discourse concerning these things is true. Uh, But pick it up in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have uh, to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before uh, in the word of truth of the gospel. And so uh, because of the belief or or faith that these believers have placed in the facts of the gospel, there's hope laying for them in heaven according to the word of truth, right? And so what do we have waiting on us? We have, uh, as the pastor has been pointing out, new bodies that we would get if we were to die and and leave these bodies. There's a lot of things. (laughs) And Brother Scott says, yes, those those dog bites won't be affecting me anymore. (laughs) Uh, But you look to this hope that we have in heaven and it's upon the basis that God said it, that we can place real hope around these things. Now, I have hope and have had hope for 20 years that Oklahoma was going to win another national championship. (laughs) But but has that come to fruition? That hope is based on uh, a wish, (laughs) basically, that I have. (laughs) It's not based on fact or truth. It's not based on a promise from God. But if you have something from God's word that he has said, you can put hope on that. And not only you can put hope in it, you can take it to the bank that it's going to happen. Right. And you see this. Um, So hope there is based on God's word of truth. We see the preacher uh, should rightly divide the word of truth. Go with me over to uh, Second Timothy, chapter two and verse 15. Second Timothy chapter two and verse 15. And pick it up at verse 10 where he says, therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake that they may also obtain the salvation, which is in Christ Jesus 
with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer with, uh, if we suffer, excuse me, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to not to uh, excuse me to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. On the other hand, in verse sixteen, he says, "But shun and uh, profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more un- ungodliness." And so this idea of studying, not really the word that we think of for study, is being eager, looking for opportunities to show yourself approved. And if you're preaching the word of God, this is something that you should be doing, right? You shouldn't be, uh, someone comes up to you and has a question about something, you're him hiding around and don't have the answer because you haven't been uh, in your word and understanding what the word of God really says, Right? People are looking to you for understanding as a, a, a man of God and a studier of the word of God. You should be able to give them that. But the other side of that is rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, this that we have here is the word of God and it is true. Now, what does it say? There's a lot of people that think they know what it says and they give opinions based on this word, but they're not rightly dividing the word of truth. They're not cutting it down the middle like they should be. If they were supposed to take a a precise scalpel to make a cut, they're taking a saw and making a jagged edge through the word of God. This is serious. You should not be approaching the word of God as something that just frivolously can be taken and information given and dispersed to people. Why? You give two examples there in the context in verse 17 of Hymenaeus and Philetus who were not cutting the word of God correctly. And as a result of that, they had a bad impact on other believers. And so it's very important that you cut the word of God correctly. As it's God's word and it's true, as you're saying it to people in the way in the context that God intended for it to be stated, then people are going to get the correct information that they need for their lives. But if you're not cutting it right, then people aren't getting the right information, correct? And so that's why a, a man of God or workman of God should be cutting the word of God correctly. Uh, We also see uh, that God seeks and performs his attribute of truth uh, through individuals. And so uh, there are individuals that, uh, of course, can uh, proclaim the truth of God. Uh, Over in John chapter 4 and verse 23, we see the Lord pointed uh, to the future expectation of him being worshipped in spirit and in truth, or God being worshipped in spirit and in truth. Chapter 4 of John and verse 23. Now, of course, in this context, he's speaking to the woman at the well. And this woman at first didn't know who was truly in front of her and who she was dealing with. But at the end of this interaction, of course, she does. Uh, But pick it up in verse 21. He says, Jesus saith unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh uh, when You shall neither in this mountain uh, or excuse me, neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the father. As you remember back to this woman, she's a Samaritan. She's part Jew uh, and part something else. Not sure what what her other 
ethnicity was, but the, the point of the matter is, as a Samaritan, she's not looked at by the Jews as equal, right? She's looked at as, as a half-breed, as something that's not very uh, important. Uh, and, and the Jews had a kind of a monopoly on the worship of God. And she's saying, uh, where is it that we're supposed to worship? Well, he says, it's not at Jerusalem, it's not in this place, but he's going to give her the proper answer. In verse 22, you worship, you know not what. You don't even know what you worship. We know what we worship for salvation is out from the Jews. And so out from the Jews is to source. In verse 23, but the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such worship of him. And so as you understand that God is true, he, he desires worship in truth. You can't, uh, as a person that can't relate to God in the realm of your, hum, uh, uh, your spirit, in your regenerate spirit, worship him in the correct way and in the correct manner. And so he's looking to a future time when you're able to uh, receive the Holy Spirit and worship him in that way. And so uh, he corrects this for this woman at the well. And I read verse, no, read on verse 24, sorry. Uh, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, And so you see that there. Uh, Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, we see Paul boasted in the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 10. And as we're turning there, you can think about the fact that uh, the only way for a human being to relate to God in truth is for the believer or the individual to have that indwelling of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit so that you can relate to him properly. There is nothing true about an individual, about a human being, right? You follow around an individual or a human being long enough, you're going to see that that individual is a liar, (laughs) And can't live up to the expectation of truth, right? We can't always be who we're supposed to be. Uh, but when we're living out who we are in Christ, we do have that opportunity. Uh, but pick it up in let's go from verse five. He says, "For I suppose I was not wit behind the very chiefs, chiefest of apostles, but through, though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge." But we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that you might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. And so as you look at it, Paul's not saying that he put on a bandit's mask and went around to these churches and took their money, right? No, these people freely offered and he gave this to the Corinthian saints when they didn't even necessarily need it, right? And he's saying this on, on behalf of them uh, uh, and kind of shaming them in the way that he's saying it here. In verse 9, and when I was uh, present with you and wanted, or, or he lacked things, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, so uh, and so will I keep myself in verse 10 as the truth of Christ is in me. No man shall stop me from boasting in the regions of Achaia. 
Wherefore, because I love you, uh, love you not, God knoweth. But what I do, I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we are, uh, or even as we. And so uh, you look at this uh, idea of Paul needing money or needing something from the Corinthian saints, and a lot of it was inspired by what these false teachers are saying. And Paul is combating against this and saying, as the truth of Christ is in me. As I'm living in who I need to be in Christ and I'm able to live out truth and fact in life, uh, this is reality. I didn't need any money from you. It was provided to me from other churches. And so uh, you see Paul being able to live out truth uh, because he's living in his position in Christ. Uh, also over in uh, Ephesians 4.21, we see the believer is taught uh, by God and receives truth in Christ. It looks like some of my verses got chopped off there Uh, but Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 21 and we'll call it good here and let's go back just a little bit to verse 17 and and again if It's awful funny to me, some of these people that teach that you can, uh, you don't have uh, this nature, (laughs) sinful nature that you can defer back to as a believer. And that's going to be very interesting to see how they live out their lives as you as you look at them in their lives and the things that they do, Uh, because there's so much scriptural evidence that, that shows that, hey, this is how you were. And there's the opportunity that you can revert back to living there again. Uh, but hopefully that doesn't happen. But in verse 17, he says this, I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds. Now, is he saying that you can't walk as the Gentiles walk? He's saying don't. <laughs> By him saying that, he's saying that there's a potential there that you might walk as the Gentiles walk. Uh, and so. Uh, in the vanity or the uselessness of their minds. And so their mind is focused on things that have no inherent end to them. Uh, verse 18, having the under, their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, being, uh, because of blindness uh, of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if so be uh, that you have heard him and have been taught by him, as is the truth in Jesus. And so uh, the factual basis of how you're living out this Christian life is upon the basis of truth. And why is that? Is it because we've learned this truth or we have this ability to know truth apart from God? No, it's because we have learned Christ because Christ is indwelling us. And as you're living out this Christian life and growing and maturing, you're getting to different levels of understanding uh, in that way. And you see, uh, again, the truth in Christ being able to be worked out in individual believers. And so, uh, again, uh, suffice it to say here that the believer is able to live out uh, in God's truth because the believer has indwelling uh, persons of the Godhead to show you what truth truly is. Uh, And so that wraps up the attributes of God. And again, we didn't want to take a whole lot of time going into several verses because we do have a class 
on Monday nights, uh, not in this, this round, but uh, one of our uh, classes for uh, our Monday night class concerning uh, the attributes of God. Uh, but we do want to move on to looking at the nature of God. And so as you understand uh, nature, the Oxford English Dictionary uh, defines nature as the basic or inherent features of something, especially when seen as a characteristic of it. And so as you look at a, 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 a sentence in, entailing that, it says, helping them to realize the nature of their problems. Where did these problems originate? What was it that caused uh, the problem? Merriam-Webster's uh, dictionary defines it as the inherent character or basic constitution of a person or thing. And so they say essence. Well, what, does, what do we see from Scripture? What is the uh, driving part of what nature is when it relates to God? We see it, again, as the sum total of the essence and attributes of God. And so that's why we've looked at the essence of God first and then the attributes. And when you put these things two together, it combines to make the nature of God. And so what do we understand about God? God is immutable. Uh, that means that God is not able to be whatever he has said is going to happen. No one can speak against that thing. Uh, whatever God has established in his counsel, it cannot be undone. Now, does God allow for individual men to make decisions and choices? Absolutely. But God is not going to allow anything that a man does or anything that a spirit being does or any of his creation does to overturn what God has said is going to happen. And so there are certain things that God has said in his decree that are going to happen. Is anybody going to stop the return of Christ? It's something that God said is going to be. It's going to happen. And we've seen it time and time again throughout Scripture where God has said this thing is going to happen. God allows for the choices of men, but those choices all lead to what God said is going to happen uh, coming to be. And so as we look at immutability, which is the first uh, part of the nature that we want to look at, Again, we'll look to Merriam-Webster and then define it more thoroughly. Uh, Merriam-Webster says that it's uh, something that is not capable or susceptible to change. And so we see that the persons of the Godhead, uh, and this is our theological definition of immutability, do not change themselves and cannot be changed by anyone or anything else. Again, I'll say they do not change themselves and they cannot be changed by anything or anyone else. Uh, there's nothing, including the other persons of the Godhead. So God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, all sat down together in council and came up and agreed to go with this divine plan of the Father. And you do not see the other persons coming and saying, huh, I changed my mind. <laughs> I don't like that plan anymore. Let's reverse field. Let's go to something else. I don't like the way this is working out. Uh, we might do that as human beings, right? Uh, we come up with a plan together. We sit down and say, this is the way we want to go. Well, someone might say, you know what? I don't like that plan anymore. I don't think it's working out good. I think we need to take another path. But God doesn't do that. So the persons of the Godhead were able to account for everything that they desired to happen and agreed on the plan of the Father, and it's the one that they stick with. 
Uh, what are the results of this? We see that the persons of the Godhead, again, cannot change each other. And that's an uh, important part to note. And the persons of the Godhead cannot be changed by the actions of creation. And so as you look to uh, the sin of Satan, as you look to the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of, of, of Eden, they didn't catch God by surprise. He didn't say, oh my, I didn't account for them doing this. Let me go back and, and redo this plan. No, he, he knew that these things were going to happen and there's nothing that's going to change the end destination of where he wants to get us to. And that's important to, to cite. Now, let's look at uh, a couple scriptures here. Go with me over to uh, Isaiah chapter 44, or excuse me, 46 and verse 10. Isaiah 46, 10. And it's pretty strongly stated in this verse. And let's pick it up at verse three it says, hearken unto me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, uh, which are carried from the womb. And even uh, to your old age, I am he. And even to uh, whore hairs, he uh, will I carry you. Uh, I have made and I will bear even I will carry and deliver you to whom uh, will you liken me? And make me equal and compare me that we may be alike. And so as you, you look at God in the Old Testament, it's, it's very interesting that he keeps having to uh, explain to Israel that there is none like him. There is no one else like him. You, as if it weren't enough for him to bring them out of Israel and show them all of these things that they saw in Israel. He continues to have to reiterate throughout the Old Testament. There is none like me. Why? Because they continue to go and worship other idols and try to find other gods. There is none like me. A very interesting statement that he has to make in verse six. They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance and hire goldsmiths and he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him up on the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place and standeth him from his place shall be not removed. Uh, or shall he not remove excuse me yea uh, one shall cry unto another unto him yet he cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble remember this and show yourselves uh, yourselves men bring it again to mind O ye transgressors remember the former things of old for I am God and there is none else I am God there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient uh, times, the things that are not yet done. And so the things that you haven't even seen yet, he declares them as, as done. Just amazing statements throughout uh, this saying, my counsel shall stand. I will do of my good pleasure. And so the things that God says, the things that God has decreed and declared, who's going to change them? And it's an amazing and, and comforting thing for us to know as believers, because what has God said about us? What has God promised us from Scripture? And we can look at the world and see all of the chaos going on and say, man, it's been 2000 years and the clock is ticking and it doesn't seem like things are getting uh, any better. Right. In fact, we can say things are probably getting worse. <laughs> but guess what? God's counsel will stand. 
Those things that God said are going to come to pass are going to come to pass. And he will do those things that are of his good pleasure. And no one's going to change it. No one. Not the activities of individuals. Not the evil of men. Not how bad men get. And I don't care who you think is bad or who you think is good or what's going on in this world. It's still within God's control. And everything that he said is going to come to pass is going to come to pass. Uh, we see uh, also that King Nebuchadnezzar is caused to uh, declare and testify uh, that God is in complete control. Go with me over to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35. Now, uh, we did also go uh, through Daniel in Bible study with the, the pastor. It took quite a bit of time getting through there, there as well. <laughs> but as, as we got through, one of the most interesting parts of that study was to see Nebuchadnezzar a king. And if you believe the Bible, you believe that it's true. This king of one of the most mighty nations, or the most at the time mighty nation in Babylon, driven to his knees out in the field like an animal because he had dared to go against God, right? And and letting his hair grow, looking like, uh, uh, who was the guy in the, the 20s that went crazy? And, uh, Howard Hughes. <laughs> and let his hair grow and, and uh, all the way down, his beard didn't cut his hair, his nails growing like an animal, and he's out in the fields crawling around. This is the king of a nation dropped to his knees by the God of the universe. And we see this here. Pick it up in um, pick it up in verse 31. Go back just a little bit because the king says something interesting here. Pick it up in verse 28. He says, um, and so this prediction was made concerning King Nebuchadnezzar uh, because of some of the claims that he had made. But in verse 28, it says all this thing or all this came upon the King uh, Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He walked uh, in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon, the king spake and said, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and the honor for honor of my majesty? And so as he looks at this great kingdom, he looks at it and says, Man, what a job I have done. This is a beautiful kingdom and I've done it all myself. And God's going to show him, no, no, sir, it wasn't you. You had nothing to do with it. I gave you this. And so in verse 31, while the word was in his uh, or in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from thee and they shall drive thee from men and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen. Seven times shall pass over thee until thou know the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And so, no, Nebuchadnezzar, it wasn't you. And guess what? By the way, seven years you're going to be out here in the field living like an animal until you repent and say, it's God that gave me these things. It wasn't me. In verse 33, the same hour was a thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of the heaven 
till his hairs were grown like eagle, eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird claws. And at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand and say unto him, What, uh, do, what doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I, I was established in my kingdom. And excellent majesty was added unto me. And so, uh, again, you see that Nebuchadnezzar uh, submits to the fact that no one can tell God what to do. It's God that gave him the power. It's God that allowed him to be in the position he's in. And no one can stay God's hand. No one's going to direct what God is doing or where he's going. He is completely immutable. Uh, Now, We'll continue to look at this next week. I don't want to jump into some of these other ones because they uh, might take a little bit more time. Uh, But we'll come back with uh, Hebrews chapter 13. And then we want to look at uh, how the counsel of God displays his immutability. That one's hard to say um, uh, next week. And so let's bow in a word of prayer and we'll close out. Father, we're grateful again for this day and grateful in in a world that is full of change and it's in constant flux. Uh, that you remain the same and that there's no one uh, that's able to change the essence of who you are. No one is able to change the way that you react to situations or the attributes that you act by. And no one is ever able to change the nature of God. You are God, you're God all alone, and it doesn't matter uh, what man or creation does. We pray that as we uh, continue to move through this study, again, that we'd have an appreciation for how finite we are in comparison to a God that is infinite. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.